going straight into our scripture reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, well, then the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder what heaven is like. Do you ever think about that? Does your imaginations run away with you a little bit sometimes? Do you ever wonder, what is heaven like? What are we going to see there? What are we going to experience? When I was growing up, my grandfather at Thanksgivings or Christmases would often read a, uh, a poem called the 19th hole. And all the way through the poem, he would recite life's various fairways and sand traps until you get to the very end and you finish your round and you get to go to that heavenly clubhouse, the 19th hole, where you do golfer things forever. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about what heaven will be like. And when you do, I wonder if the emphasis the lens, so to speak, through which you see everything, consider everything, is the same lens that we see here in 1 Corinthians 13, namely that everything in heaven is colored and shaped by love. Jonathan Edwards said, heaven is a world of love. And that's exactly what we see here. I think what the apostle is trying to impress upon us in this passage is to have us give consideration to how our concept of heaven, of those things which 
would mark our existence forever as we live and reign with Christ bodily after the resurrection? How do those things affect our life now? How do our values today reflect or how are they shaped by those things that are of infinite value in the life to come? That's really what we see here. The logic of Paul in chapter 13 is really quite simple. I'll just walk you through it real quick. In verses 1 through 3, he's going to say a gifted church without love is nothing. And I've been around Redeemer Church long enough to know that you are a gifted church. And this is a passage for you as much as it was for them. A gifted church without love is nothing. But then in verses 4 through 7, he's going to pause and he wants them to consider their love. Consider your love. And he wants them to consider it specifically in verses 8 through the end of the chapter, 8 through 13, in light of their future. He says, a gifted church without love is nothing. So consider your love in light of your future. That's the, that's the logic of the text. And the big idea is essentially this. If you, were, if you were to write down my sermon in a sentence, it would go something like this. Commit yourself to doing now what you will be doing forever by loving one another. Commit yourself to doing now what you will do forever by loving one another. Let's dive right into the passage. Beginning of chapter 13 there. Paul says, what if I, in verse 1, speak in the tongues of men and angels? What if I have such prophetic powers that I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Second of a verse two, what if I have miracle working faith so strong that I'm able to move mountains? What if I give away everything that I have? Verse three. What if I delivered myself to torture for the gospel's sake? Wouldn't that be impressive? Wouldn't you say, hey, that's the kind of church. That's the kind of Christian that God approves of. Well, here Paul says that without love, all of that is nothing. You are nothing and you gain nothing. The tongues of angels, he says without love, that's just a bunch of racket. No different than the chaos of pagan worship in downtown Corinth. Prophecies and, and mysteries and moving mountains without love, you are nothing. Huge cash donations, willful poverty, martyrdom. You gain nothing. That's a bit of a shock, isn't it? Not only for them, but I think it's a bit of a shock for us as well, because we tend to think in terms of sacrifice equals spiritual. And in terms of sensational equals good. In our own day, atheists like Richard Dawkins assume that miracles can't happen. And we as Christians, especially Christians in the West, we tend to believe that God can do some weird things from time to time. But really, those are the kinds of exceptions that belong to God alone. That's not his normal way of doing things. And so when we see something resembling a miracle, we might assume that it must be good. And the people who are doing them, well, they must be good people as well. We may even think that that if only there were a few more exceptions few more miraculous exceptions, the kind that our non-believing friends could see, well, then maybe there would be more Christians in our city. 
But here's the problem with that line of thinking. The Bible doesn't teach that miracles are inherently good. Or that God is the only exception in an otherwise purely scientific world. Or that we should measure people by the miracles that they do. Consider Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist was greater than anyone else in the entire Old Testament. That's what Jesus says. He was greater than Moses, who parted the Red Sea. He's greater than Elijah, who rode on chariots of fire. And he's greater even than Elisha, who brought someone back to life. And then in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, we learn that John the Baptist did no miracles. And yet he's the greatest Old Testament prophet that ever lived. Isn't that strange? The man who Jesus said was the greatest man who ever lived up to his time did no miracles. Consider John 2. That even when John or Jesus was doing miracles, they didn't seem to be what we make them out to be. And so in John chapter 2, you have loads of people who seem to believe in Jesus when they see his miracles. But then it says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to any of them. Why? Because he knew their hearts. Even Jesus was dubious about the kind of faith that comes from merely seeing a miracle. Later on, just a handful of chapters, John chapter 6, he was vindicated. He was right not to entrust himself to them. Because only a few chapters later, right after one of his biggest miracles, lots of them end up just walking away. And they reject him altogether. Or consider Matthew chapter 7. Do you remember Jesus' big sermon on the mount? What does he say? Not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But then Matthew records Jesus is saying that many will respond. Isn't that interesting? Many will say, many will say, yeah, okay, but, but what have we prophesied in your name? You know, like mysteries and knowledge and stuff. Or what if we did mighty works in your name? I don't know, like maybe moving mountains. What if we did that in your name? Surely that's got to count for something, right? If anyone gets into your kingdom, it has to be the mountain moving people, doesn't it? The very next verse, Jesus says this, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, you are nothing and you gain nothing. Mark 13, in fact, Jesus told us, how can we know if a Christian teacher is a false teacher? He says they perform signs and wonders to lead God's elect astray. Someone at this point might say, well, hold up then. Hold up. How can someone who performs miracles possibly be bad? How can a church like Corinth that seems to be full of them not be the best church in the world? Answer, because there's nothing distinctively Christian about a miracle. Anyone can do a miracle. The magicians in Egypt matched Moses sign for sign all the way through Exodus chapter 7 and through two of the plagues. They could do it too. And if that sounds shocking to you, then let me let you in on a little biblical secret. This world is not just matter. Jesus believed and taught about Satan and demons as well as about God and angels. And knowing that, miracles should not impress us as much as they often do. Because there's nothing distinctively Christian about a miracle. 
But what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 13 is that there is something distinctively Christian about love. By themselves, all the seemingly sensational and exceptional parts of Christian spirituality, of angelic tongues and prophecies and miracles, you realize these things ultimately by themselves say nothing at all about us. They have no value to you unless they're done in love. Love for God and, as we're going to see in verses 4 and following, love for others. I just want to pause for a minute before we press on. And I want to recognize that only Jesus, if you scan through verses 1 through 3, I think only Jesus fits all the what-ifs of these verses. The Corinthians try to do all kinds of things that Jesus did, but they missed his love. And I wonder in what ways we might be tempted to do the same individually or in our respective churches. What about evangelical Christians generally? We might say, for instance, what if I have the gift of leadership? Oh, we love our Christian famous leaders, don't we? What if a Christian leader has 50,000 followers on social media and his church is running 18 services across five locations and he headlines packed out leadership conferences all over the country and yet how many of these have been scandalized and disqualified for abusive leadership? Yeah, you may be a great leader, but without love, you're nothing. You may be a great organization builder. You may be a great crowd gatherer, but without love, you're nothing. You may have a gazillion followers on social media, but without love, you gain nothing. So I would ask you, what about you, Redeemer Church? You are a gifted church. I've seen it. I look forward to coming back in a few weeks and enjoying it. You can serve me all you want. Love me all you want. I'll be back in a few weeks. I look forward to it. And I know, having been here year over year over the course of many years, that you are a gifted, gifted church. God has been so kind to you. You guys love well. But I wonder in what ways might our enemy tempt you to boast in your many gifts and leave love behind? Do you consider yourself not vulnerable to that? Oh, beloved, all of us are vulnerable to this. Each one of our churches is vulnerable to this. So here's the million dollar question then. How are your gifts being used? Who are they for? Are they accompanied by Christian love? Because that's really the point of the chapter on love, isn't it? If we're talking about love, then at the end of the day, what we're ultimately talking about or who we're ultimately talking about is Jesus. Just consider this, for instance, of all people, Jesus could speak the tongues of angels. Oftentimes we get, I think, distracted by some of the stranger aspects of these handful of chapters in Corinthians, and we miss the big idea that's being put forward. What exactly is meant by tongues of angels? I'm just going to be honest with you. There's a handful of views to it. I'm not really sure. But I do know that the Lord Jesus Christ could speak angel. He could call if he wanted angels by the legion to come and serve him at any moment. He is their king. They are his servants waiting in the wings, so to speak, to do his bidding. But consider in light of verse one, even though Jesus could have commanded legions of them to rescue him from the cross, even then he chose not to speak angel. 
Why did he refuse? He could save himself or he could save us. And he chose us. Jesus knew that it was better to remain silent and have love, love even to the point of death on a cross than to speak in the tongues of angels called legions of angels and not have love. This is the kind of love that Christ has demonstrated for each of us. If I speak in the tongues of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Many people may say that about many of us, but we cannot say that about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is love. And so in light of that, in light of what we see here in verses 1 through 3, in light of even just considering that one small example of what we see in Christ and consider in Christ, he wants them beginning in verse 4 to consider their own love. When we take verses 4 to 7 out of context, as we often do, whether it's for weddings or whether it's for presidential inaugurations, we tend to focus on the excellency of love. But I think we tend to do so at the expense of the fact that these verses are really a rebuke to this church. These would have been hard words for the Corinthians to hear because the tone is, here's what love looks like and you're not living like this. There are 16 ways that love is described in these verses, and there are 16 ways that the Corinthians have failed to love one another. It's a wake-up call from the apostle. It's as if to say, love is patient and kind, but you can't even wait for one another at the Lord's Supper, chapter 11. Love doesn't envy and boast, but there is envy and, and strife among you as, you as you quarrel over whose preferred leader is the best. Love isn't arrogant or rude, oh, but you guys are so boastful. Even in neglecting half of the church of the Lord's Supper, you, you humiliate and you shame others even as you boast in yourself. Love doesn't insist on its own way, but your focus is on seeking your own advantage rather than the advantage of many. You are willing to destroy the consciences of your weaker brothers and sisters so that you can go get your favorite cut of meat at Zeus's temple, downtown Corinth. He says, love isn't irritable or resentful, but some of you are suing each other in secular courts. Chapter six over minor disagreements. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. But rather than rejoicing in the truth, you're tolerating a man who is sleeping with his stepmother and you're acting like it doesn't even matter. Oh, you're a gifted church. You have so many gifts. But you don't have love. It'll make you hear that text a little differently when you hear it read at a, at a wedding. It's meant to be a rebuke. He says, you're a gifted church, but you're in it for yourselves. And if you use your gifts in that way, then you are nothing. And so he wants them to consider their love. Consider how love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And it's right there that Paul turns his rebuke into a climactic refrain. And throughout the letter, Paul's reluctantly going to prop himself up as the example. He says, first of all, that love bears all things and endures all things. You may recall, if you've read through the letter, that in chapter 8, Paul was willing to give up his rights and his freedoms because he was concerned about the eternal good of others. 
In chapter 9, he says, we endure, same word, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're willing to endure anything so that you don't stumble over the gospel. He says, love believes and love hopes all things. Well, that doesn't mean that love is gullible. If I tell you that I have a billion dollars and a purple emu to give away in the foyer afterwards, you're not going to believe me and you shouldn't. That's not what this means. Love doesn't believe all things. Verse 7 isn't saying that we should distinguish between what is good and evil. We should be able to distinguish what is true and false. Remember, Paul already said in the previous verse that love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but in the truth. We see him doing this time and again, even as he delivers the truth of the gospel to this church. So we see the apostles love for the Corinthians. His love believes all things and it hopes all things. Consider this. This is a messy church Boy, they just make a mess of everything. And yet Paul begins his letter by thanking God for them. He repeatedly calls them throughout the letter affectionately. Brothers and sisters, even though they're a mess, even though they are making his life so, so pastorally difficult, right? It's not just a church with a few squeaky wheels. This church is the squeaky wheel. And yet he's hopeful. He's hopeful that they'll listen to truth and he's hopeful that they're going to grow. And he's hopeful that they're going to be full of the work of the Lord that lasts. It's how he concludes the end of chapter 15. That in spite of all of their faults and failings and immaturity, he is for them for the gospel's sake. Why? Because love believes all things. Boy, you're a mess, but I believe the gospel is the most powerful force in the universe. I believe the Holy Spirit is at work in you and transforming you and changing you. And when Holy Spirit filled believers are confronted with the truth of God's word as presented here by the apostle, I believe it's going to change you. He believes it and he's hopeful for them. That's what love does. So Paul is our example in this kind of love. He wants this church, and I think by implication, he wants us to imitate him. In fact, he just said a couple of chapters earlier, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so some of you can recall all the way back in chapter one, it began with a began with a focus on Jesus's work. What Paul calls the word of the cross and this example of Christ crucified permeates the entire letter as the perfect example of love. Just a handful of phrases. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. His body was given for you. We recite in the Lord's Supper. His own blood was shed to ratify a new covenant in which your sins are forgiven. All of it embodies the love that Paul's talking about here in chapter 13. In fact, that word here in the chapter that is repeated over and over and over is the Greek word agape. That throughout the New Testament, that word is connected to the sacrificial love of Jesus. Sacrificial service for the good of others seen perfectly in his death on a cross to bring salvation. And it's a love like that that you and I as Christians, as those who are in Christ by faith, it's a love like that that you and I are called to. So what it means to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling to which you and I have been called is to love like this. So what does it look like? What does a love like this look like? Practically speaking, how do we put flesh on it? 
Some of you remember a British pop band from years back called The Darkness. Maybe you don't. From Denton. We know it. They hit it big with a song like, I believe in a thing called love. And love is only a feeling. They sing their songs in a really high, cheesy falsetto. I believe in a thing called love. You know what I'm talking about? You know, that song? Okay. Don't ask me to do it again. But that's what a lot of people think, don't they? They believe that love is only a feeling. But here we see in these handful of verses that love is concrete and it is active. It is something to be lived out. Our culture wants to believe that love should be easy, that it should feel easy. That's what we hear in our songs, what we see in movies. If it's not easy, it's not true love. Something's gone wrong. Perhaps you married the wrong person or you joined the wrong church. It's time to walk away, look for something easier, right? That's what love does. But we see the exact opposite here. Because the reality is that love is often going to feel hard. It's going to feel like sacrifice. It's costly. Consider the Apostle Paul. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Love is profoundly other person centered and it is made of daily decisions and actions that continually put the good of others before ourselves, even at our own discomfort at times. And so some of us, when we look at these verses, we may be challenged because the reality is that none of us, even if we take a survey of the last 24 hours, have loved like this. That's why we still need Christ. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. Because we need a love that we don't yet possess as we ought, a righteousness that we don't have in and of ourselves, and yet in Christ we have all of these things. And so in light of Christ, in light of owning his righteousness, in light of being loved by him, how do we respond to verses like this? Well, in this love, Paul is calling them to from a position of security. He's saying, first of all, that we love because we are loved. And that's the key as you think about your relationships in this church or in your homes or elsewhere. How to use your gifts to encourage and strengthen one another to follow Jesus. That's really what's in view here. Practically speaking, your love for one another, it says here, is to be patient and kind. That we don't rush to be first. We wait on one another. That you can't grow impatient in this church with fellow members. You can't grow impatient with the slowness of other people's sanctification. We have to suffer long with one another because God has been patient with us. We're kind to one another because God's kindness to us in Christ. Also, loving one another, notice this. It looks like never envying others. We don't envy their gifts or their influence. We don't envy their special friendship with the pastor that we wish that we had because love doesn't boast in its own. It doesn't sink into self-pity when others get the kudos that you think that you deserve for your service. Can you continue to serve the other members of Redeemer Church, helping them to grow in Christ and to be happy in the Lord, even when it seems like their ministry is recognized, but yours isn't? Can you work to make others in this church look good without envy filling your heart? Can you pray for the ministry of others to prosper when it would cast yours in the shadows? Beloved, few things poison a church like envy. 
Nothing kills envy like contentment in God's love for you in Christ. Notice love also is concerned not to shame and humiliate others, but to honor others. It realizes that it's not all about me. It doesn't insist on its own way. When Kathy and I were newly married, we had an older couple that that discipled us along the way. A faithful color, faithful couple, Frank and Carol Dalton. And I remember at one point, Kathy and I were meeting with Frank and Carol and and Frank told Kathy and I something that she and I are still trying to figure out. He said, you know, the longer that we live and the longer that we've married, we've realized that there's almost no hills worth dying on. I love to die on hills, don't you? But love doesn't insist on its own. It doesn't insist my way is the right way. It doesn't insist on doing things the way that I want to do them. Now, when it comes to right versus wrong issues of Christian obedience, then we're right to be insistent. But when it comes to right versus left issues, not right versus wrong issues, but right versus left issues, matters of personal wisdom or of prudence, then there is truly almost no hills worth dying on. Love says, I don't have to get my way all the time. I'm happy to do it your way. Moreover, notice he says love isn't irritable or resentful. You know how it feels when something rubs up against your skin the wrong way too many times. It it irritates you. You become overly sensitive. You don't want things to touch you or you're going to recoil or fire back at it. And we can be that way too, can't we? When certain kinds of people in the church rub us the wrong way too many times, we can grow irritable. We can grow short. But notice love isn't easily irritated. So Paul says, love has a thick skin. It's not easily irritated and it has a tender heart. And it's in this way that love guards against resentment. You see that there? That word translated resentful in verse five indicates keeping a tab on other people's offenses against you. A former pastor of mine would often say, if we don't get hysterical, we often get historical. We keep a growing log of all the ways that other people have slighted us or let us down or offended us. In our culture, if we're honest with ourselves, our culture lionizes this. We love people that have chips on their shoulders. Many of you, like me, when we were all trapped in our houses, or at least in Denton, I don't know about Graham, in Denton we were trapped in our houses during COVID, and we... We watched The Last Dance. Anybody watch The Last Dance? That biography on the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. If you didn't, that's okay. It was just a, it was just kind of a, you know, it was a documentary on the last year of, of Michael Jordan's career with the Bulls and everything that led up to it and what made him him and what made the team the team. And, and it was really exciting to watch it in the early, in, in the early episodes. But by the time it got to the last few episodes, it just grew increasingly awkward. Because by the end of the documentary, the greatest basketball player on the planet in the history of mankind looked really small and petty and mean and abusive. His entire career was fueled by resentment, by this long list of real or imagined slights that fueled him and drove him. And we celebrate it. 
Because he's got the rings to prove it. It was all worth it. But beloved, the gospel is so contrary to that. The Bible says that if you're in Christ by faith, then God has forgiven you all your trespasses. Get this, Colossians 2, by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with all of its legal demands. It can make no more demands of you. That is to say that God has so loved you in Jesus that he cannot get historical with you. At least when it's concerned with your many sins against him. They were canceled at the cross. And if you and I have a clean record of righteousness before an all-holy God in Christ, if we have been forgiven in that way, then who are we to keep a record of other people's wrongs and offenses against us? Love doesn't hold others hostage by their past offenses. It frees them. Love is not resentful. Positively speaking, though, he says that love bears all things. That means that even when others are difficult to love or even when they've sinned against us, Paul says this in Galatians 6, we bear their burdens and we restore them with gentleness. Welcome back. Let's have you over for lunch. Let's spend some time together. That's what love does. It bears even with those that are difficult to love, even even those who sin against us. It doesn't just bear all things, but notice here it also believes all things. In other words, love believes the best about others. It's eager to give the benefit of the doubt. But that's hard to do when we're continually hurt and disappointed by others, isn't it? That's why love, it says here, hopes all things. It doesn't demand perfection from others. It's not one strike and you're out with me. Even in disappointment, love hopes in God's work in that person. Even though his work is slow, way slower than we think it should be sometimes. Come on, God, I need you to speed up the sanctification a little bit. (laughs) It's going a little slow for my taste. Sure would be nice to be a little bit more pleasant around that person and with that person. Can you just make them a little bit more holy between now and next Sunday? That'd be great. Even though his work is slow, God has promised to bring his work to completion. At the day of Christ Jesus, love looks at the other members of this church and hopes in that you're a work in progress. And our Lord Jesus Christ, though you may be difficult at times and I may be difficult at times, will complete his work in you. And I'm hopeful in that fact. And I think this is what makes it possible for love to endure all things. Because love is Hopeful that God is at work in you. It doesn't quit when relationships get hard. It doesn't go find a new church at the first sign of a difficult relationship or a conflict. It's not fickle or flaky, but it has a long vision. It looks beyond present circumstances to a perfect heaven, which as Jonathan Edwards put it, will be a world of love. And that leads us to the final point in verses 8 through 13. He says, a gifted church without love is nothing. So you need to consider your love. But as you do, verse 8, consider it in light of your future. It's been a while since we've been there, so let me read it. Love, he says, never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they're going to cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. He says, love never ends. 
As Paul persuades the Corinthian church to change their ways, he wants them to use their gifts and to pursue love. And he gives this final reason, that is that love never ends. Literally, it will never fall. It is established like a great girder, fixed and permanent, and it runs all the way through human history and into eternity. And all around it are going to be things that belong to this world, even spiritual gifts. And all these are going to pass away and they're all going to come to an end. Prophecies are going to pass away. Tongues are going to cease. Knowledge is going to pass away. But love, love holds firm. And so the future for Christians, oh, you got to get this. Whenever you're tempted to look around and say, oh, I wish I was gifted the way that that person was gifted. I wish I could teach like Pastor Ryan. I wish I could serve and practice hospitality the way that, that, that so many others do here. The future for the Christian, your future, is not spiritual gifts. Your future is love. So we see verses 9 and 10, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In this life, all these gifts, they're good. God gives them to us and they bring knowledge and truth and growth. They bring us God's word, but they do it in part. They only do it bit by bit. They work kind of like the way that a body works together. You may remember all the way back in chapter one of the letter, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. He tells them that you're not lacking in any gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no lack. We have the gifts, he says. But notice he also says that they've been given to us as we wait. One day our wait will be over. Faith will be turned to sight. And when Jesus returns, when the perfect comes, they'll all be redundant. Because the knowledge that they once brought to us, we now see face to face. We don't need him anymore. We see Jesus. We have the full knowledge of God in the face of Christ in that day. We don't need prophecies anymore. We don't need tongues anymore in this way. We don't need them because we've got Jesus. Face to face. And so he says, when Jesus returns, they'll all be redundant. All of them are going to be redundant except for one thing. Love. Love is the only non-redundancy. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways he says paul seems to be saying it's time for you to grow up all these loveless ways these self-promoting ways these competitive ways in the church that's the way children act that's the way little kids act always insisting on their own way always insisting on being noticed he goes no it's time to grow up it's time to begin thinking like children and behaving like adults. He uses this language a number of times in the letter in chapter 3. He refers to the Corinthians as infants who still require milk. And they should be on solid foods by now. Later on in the very next chapter, chapter 14, he appeals to them, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. No, be infants in evil. That is, in your actions be innocent. But in your thinking, he says, you got to be mature. It's time to grow up. It's time to stop acting like little kids. It's time to be full grown in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here in chapter 13. It's time to grow up. 
And he's saying, I want you to imitate me as you do that. As I aim to imitate Christ, just do what I do. Aim to live the way that I live. Aim to be motivated by what I'm motivated by, which is love for the churches in Christ's sake. Or for Christ's sake. And he wants them to get the right perspective on all of the gifts as it relates to love. Tongues and prophecy, valuable gifts. But they belong to this world with all of its imperfections and all of its impermanence. To elevate them above the things that will last for eternity is to make a huge error in judgment. Gifts. Redeemer Church, you have to hear gifts, spiritual gifts are not the destination. God gives them to us because he's kind. He gives them to us by his spirit so that we might be able to help one another on our journey home to heaven. But once we get there, we don't need them anymore. We weren't made for gifts. We were made for love. Heaven is a world of love. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The image of a mirror is in a hall of mirrors where things are all strange and distorted. And it's not like a mirror that many of you have hanging in your own bathrooms. For the Corinthians, a mirror would have been a polished piece of metal. It, it gives a true reflection, but somewhat of a dim reflection. Like if you were to go and, and put your face in your hubcap out in the, out in the parking lot, it would... Give a dim reflection, but not a fully accurate. You see in part, but yet not fully. It's dim. And so Paul says, if you're using your gifts properly, you'll see God in the gospel. You're going to know much, but it's not yet the bright fullness of seeing Jesus face to face. The gospel is still for us in many ways a mystery. But when the perfect comes, he says... We'll move from wonderful, true, life-giving, yet impartial knowledge to the full knowledge of God in the face of Christ. He says, then, in that day, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I'm going to see Christ as Christ sees Christ in that day. Beloved, your future is to know God as God knows you. Do you realize that? And you will love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength forever without any of your sin or any of your weakness or any of your frailty getting in the way anymore. You will not grow tired of loving in that day. You will not grow weary of doing good in that day. Can you imagine that? That's almost unimaginable to me. I'm a parent. I've got four kids. I pastor a church. There's so many days where I go home. I just, I just want to go to bed. So weary. And I know many of you feel the same way. Can you imagine a day where we don't need a nap after serving others? Oh, what a day that'll be. It's hard to imagine. It's because that's not the world that we live in. Not a hint of selfishness. Not a hint of weariness. No more need for bearing or believing or hoping or enduring anymore in our love. That's our future. Because heaven is a world of love. It's what's going to permeate our existence. That world in which no unclean thing will ever enter again. Perhaps you're here. You've been invited by a friend or perhaps you're the, the child of a member or someone who's just walked in this morning and you're looking in on Christian things. 
Perhaps you might disagree with a whole host of things that I've said, but I think you can agree with me at least on this, that the world, our world, the world you live in and I live in, our world wants love. This is evident in all the Hallmark movies you probably watched over the course of the last month, and you probably won't admit it, but we know you did it. The world loves love, but doesn't know what it is. We want love. And friend, I know that you want love. But true love doesn't sit on a hallmark. He sits in heaven. If you want to know love, oh friend, if you want to know love, come to Jesus. Who in love willingly gave up his own life to reconcile sinners like you and like me to God who created us. Receive the gift of salvation that he freely offers to you in Christ alone. You just have to receive it by faith. That's it. There's no working for it. There's no loving for it. You've already been loved. Should you be one who receives it? Oh, and in that day, he will fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you might be filled with his love and that you might grow in his love and you might know his love and that you might love others with that kind of love, with this kind of love forever. Love is your destination if you're in Christ. Why would you not want that? God offers it to you in Jesus. So friend, trust in Christ. And as a church family, as members of Redeemer Church, let me just encourage you to use your gifts. Continue to pursue grown-up behavior as you do. Practice hospitality. Serve one another. Use your, your money and your time and the many things that the Lord has given you to build one another up, to serve local pastors, to strengthen local churches, just as you've been doing for many, many years. Not acting like children, not always trying to get your own way with everything, but in love, loving one another. Because verse 13, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's the Christian triumvirate, faith, hope, and love. So it's meant to characterize our Christian life together. You could do a whole church membership class just on those three things. What does church membership at Redeemer Church look like? What does church membership at Covenant Baptist Church looks like? It looks like us fleshing out by God's help, faith, hope, and love. Among one another. All three of them are essential, but he says the greatest of these is love. Why? Because, beloved, one day when the perfect comes, our faith will become sight. And we don't need faith anymore. When the perfect comes, all of our hopes will be realized. And we have no reason to hope anymore. And we will be swept away in that day by Jesus and resurrected, glorified bodies into a new creation in a world of perfect and lasting love where no unclean thing ever enters. And so now we aim with God's help, even though we see in a mirror dimly now, to live now as we will live forever in love for one another. Faith, it's going to come to an end. That's a worldly thing, a gift from God, but it's going to come to an end. It has an expiration date. Hope. Your hope has an expiration date. You know what doesn't have an expiration date? Love. Pray with me. Father, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit who has given us all the blessings and the benefits
won by our sweet Savior, Jesus Christ, applying it to our lives, working in us as we work out this salvation in the context of our particular churches. And I pray for the saints here at Redeemer that you would grow them in love, that they would become less and less and less like children and more and more grown up into Christ. Would you be kind to do that by your spirit and your word as you strengthen them and feed them and teach them? And for all of the many ways that this church, and I thank God for all the many ways that my own church is gifted by your Holy Spirit, those gifts are evident. God, may it never be the case that those gifts become a means to an end. I pray that you would make these saints, that you would make the members of my own church and in every Christian church, that you would motivate us and mobilize us ultimately from love. And we thank you for how you have so loved us in Christ. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit through whom you pour out your love in our hearts. We thank you that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Would you help us by your grace to put aside all of our selfishness, all of our myopathy, all of our self-pity, And to help us begin living now as we will live forever by loving one another. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.